if you have your Bibles, can we turn together to Genesis chapter 37? The title of my message is called Fractured But Redeemable. Greek philosopher Epicurus once said this, is God willing to prevent evil but not able? If so, then he is not omnipotent. Is, is he able but not willing? If that is so, then he is cruel. Is he both able and willing? Then why do evil things happen? If he neither able nor willing, then why call him God? I think that's quite heavy. And they really distort the nature and person of who God is. And I believe this statement has been echoed through the ages by people who are disappointed and disillusioned disappointed by unanswered immediate prayers because bitterness corrupts and taints our vision, taints the way we view the Father. And our image of who God is dictates how we worship Him and how we live our lives. And right now, we are just living in a fast-paced, um, instant gratification society. Do you agree with me? We want things fast and now, instant food, instant services. And sometimes, we are programmed to think that that should be seen in our personal relationship with the Lord too and we want instant answers to all our demands. And let me just make this statement right here at the beginning that we all know this, justification is instantaneous, but sanctification is progressive, amen? We are all on a journey for God to form us constantly for His glory. And usually I'll give um, a summary at the end to wrap the sermon up, but just for today, I wanna give you a clear objective of the sermon at the beginning, that at the end of the sermon, I hope to make us see that in every season, even when you don't see it, God has always been in control and He is a good shepherd, amen? I still want us to see that sometimes instant, immediate answers according to what we want is not necessarily the best and most perfect result for us. And that's tough to hear at first, but I hope at the end you have a greater picture of the sovereignty and the goodness of our God. I would like to bring us back to the book of Genesis on a very popular character on Joseph. As a start, I would like to give you some contextual background. Joseph was one of the 12 sons of Israel, a son of Jacob and his wife, Rachel. In those days, having a huge family means you're prosperous, you're the envy of everyone, you have made it in life. In those days, that was the cultural uh, uh, relevance, all right? But, and it's the same thing with this family. This family of Jacob was large and established, but there was something else that was eating away in all of their lives about to destroy everything. The question is, what was it? I want to bring your attention to Genesis chapter 37, verse 3. And it says, Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Such a simple and seemingly harmless statement. But this was the start of the entire drama of brokenness and chaos. And we can see the fracture beginning here. Because from the beginning, we all know this, that Jacob grew up desperately lacking the love and affirmation of his father because his father, Isaac, clearly favoured and preferred his brother Isaac to him. And the whole issue of favouritism, if you think about it, really stems from the idolatry of love. And there was no father's love shown from Isaac. And this resulted in Jacob's inner neediness, which affected the rest of his life most significantly. It drove him to fill the void by wholeheartedly fixing his entire heart on Rachel. And Rachel was an incredibly beautiful woman. Jacob first looked at her and thought, wow, if I have her in my life, if I marry her, then finally I will be fulfilled and there will finally be a rest in my heart. And he did marry her and he did fix his entire affection on her. And when Rachel had Joseph, that the new boy became the new preeminent joy of Jacob's life. 
And we know that Jacob gave Joseph a very beautiful colored coat much later. And this prompted feelings of jealousy within Joseph's brothers, especially the sons of Leah. And these ill feelings were intensified when Joseph repeated two of his dreams to them, in which he was portrayed as ruling over his brethren. The first dream, the brothers were gathering wheat in the field, and the brothers' bundles bowed before Joseph's bundle. In the second, Joseph envisioned the sun, the moon, and 11 stars, symbolizing his parents and his brothers bowing before him. Then one day, Jacob instructed Joseph to visit his brothers in Shechem, where they were tending their sheep. Little did he know that it would be the last time that he would see his dear son until their reunion along 22 years later. And Joseph obeyed, but he found his brothers not in Shechem, but in Dalton instead. Seizing their chance, the brothers threw Joseph into a pit in Dalton. And the passage says in verse 20, it says, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. The throwing after the killing underscores the intense brutality of the brothers' intentions. The denial of a proper burial was one of the greatest atrocities in Hebrew culture. So right at this moment, you can sense the amount of hatred and great wickedness that was festering in their hearts. And I'm sure, I'm sure that Joseph must have cried out for help, cried out to Yahweh and to his brothers for mercy. But a short while later, his brothers spotted an Ishmaelite um, caravan passing the scene and the brothers sold Joseph to the traders and he was eventually brought to Egypt where he was sold to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's ministers. So from Genesis 37, from what we have read, we can see the entire narrative shows us that this family was in trouble, deeply fractured. And we can see the brokenness even in the main character of this story, in the life of Joseph itself. Right now, let's take a look at Joseph for a bit. I would like to point out to you at the start that Joseph was already in trouble with his brothers before, even before God gave him the prophetic two dreams, all right? Because Genesis chapter 37 verse 2 says, Joseph brought his father a bad report about them. The Hebrew word for bad report is a word that means a false report or a lie or at least a misrepresentation of some kind. So here you have a kid who is a liar. So next he told his dreams to his brothers and they were furious. The scripture says they hated him. And Joseph saw the look on their faces, the look of hatred in their eyes. He knew their anger. But when he gets another dream, when he gets a second dream, what did he do? He immediately went and told them the second dream. It means at the very least, he has no sense about the impact of his own behavior on other people, even his loved ones. He doesn't care whether his actions were dividing his family. He's becoming an arrogant person. So that's Joseph's life. He was spoiled, selfish, and arrogant. And think about the brothers. Three times in verse 4, 5, and 8, what does it say? It says, hate three times. I don't think I've encountered another passage in which such intense hatred is shown towards a fellow family member in the Bible. Hate was festering in their hearts. Underneath what looks like a big, prosperous, established family, there's hidden depths of brokenness and chaos that's going to destroy them from the inside out. And it needs to be dealt with. They needed a rescue that is divine. And I want to sideline a bit, okay, from this story. And this, I want to say this at the start, that don't brag about a private dream that God has given you. Ask the Lord first. 
whether you can share it with anyone else. Once you receive the dream from God, don't brag about it. The dream will lead you to your destiny, but bragging about your dream might keep you from getting there. And Joseph's dream, listen to this, wasn't his destiny. His purpose is not just for his brothers to bow down to him, but he might become second in command over the most powerful nation at that time and to eventually become a savior, so to speak, to save millions of people during a famine. The question is, why didn't God give Joseph a dream about him helping nations during the famine? Because Joseph would not have been motivated to help other people at a season of his life. At that age, at that season, with the state of his heart, he was just fixated on the fact that people will be bowing down before him. So, okay, let's move on, all right? And there's one verse in Genesis chapter 40, which I think almost sums up the theme of Joseph's life. If you're just looking at his life, just at, just at his circumstances, this might be the conclusion that we will all arrive to. Genesis chapter 40, verse 23, it says, the cup bearer did not remember Joseph. Let me just give you the context that Joseph had already interpreted the cupbearer dream in prison. In verse 13, he says, In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his, in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Verse 14, Only remember me. Please remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh and so get me out of this house. But Joseph was forgotten. The cupbearer kept his mouth shut and Joseph was abandoned again in prison. It almost seems like this is the main theme of the story, that Joseph is forgotten, that Yahweh forgets and is absent. And we may come to this false conclusion when we just look at the circumstances. But let's carry on. And just now, I emphasize to you, we read that Joseph was in a pit, where? In Dothan. And one day, I was researching that place in Dothan. Um, because when we learn about how to study the Bible, we always realize that places are significant. So I always go back to the scripture and say, what other places uh, is found in the scripture? And I realized Dothan appeared just once more in 2 Kings chapter 6. So twice, only two times in the Bible. Centuries later, after this story, something incredible happened in the same place in Dothan. In Joseph's time, Dothan was a remote place, isolated. But after 1,000 years in the time of the prophet Elisha, Dothan was now a city. And just very quickly, let's go to 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 17. And 2 Kings chapter 6 reveals that Elisha and his servant were in Dothan, which was surrounded by an enemy, the Syrians. And the, and the army was going to capture them and kill them. But Elisha cried out to God from the pit, as he were, and God sent chariots of fire, a heavenly angelic army that came and blinded the enemy, and everyone was rescued, everyone was saved. When we hear this story, likely we will say, that's the kind of God I want. That's the power of prayer. That's the idea of how redemption and freedom should be like. We cry out from the pit, please rescue me, and then chariots of fire will swoop down, and we are free. Supernatural fix of grace. But wait here, let's look at me. We have the same Bible, same God, same place in Dothan, two people crying out similar prayers, save me, I need rescue. In one case, nobody comes. No chariots of fire, no chariots of fire, and he gets sold to Egypt. In the other case, chariots of fire, glorious rescue. And many times this confounds us. We have questions. We ask, where were you, Lord? Why didn't you come true for me just as you did to the other family? You came true for them. 
beautiful breakthrough for that family. Why didn't you go through the same way for me? And when I feel the answer to these two stories is this, that Elisha's salvation was a simple, miraculous rescue. All Elisha needed was rescue from certain death. But I would like to say that Joseph's rescue and restoration was a little more complex. What do I mean? Joseph's family was fractured. We learned about this just now. Joseph himself was an arrogant boy. His dad's heart was only for him and his brothers were full of hatred. An angel rescuing Joseph would not be enough. Think about this with me. Can you just try to imagine with me what would happen if Joseph had a remarkable miracle right there and then? If Joseph had been saved from the very thing he wanted to be saved from, he would have been lost in a deeper way later on. Not just him, but his entire family too. Can you imagine he was, if Joseph was saved from the pit, he'd go back and say, I know what you did, but guess what? Yahweh favored me. The family will be more and more fractured. But Joseph had to actually to be abandoned to be saved. He had to go on a journey of refining fire by the Lord. And can I say this? Sometimes God may be hidden, but he's never absent. God was working in him, not just in him, but in the lives of his family members as well. God is always present and at work. And even when we feel that he's not around, redemption, restoration, and transformation is his heart for us more than just the immediate removal of obstacles. God was caring for Joseph in his silence in the midst of his journey of pain as he was caring for Elisha with all that glorious and profound angelic activity. God was sovereign and redemptive in both situations. The question this morning is, do you believe that God is still working in both kinds of situations? Because our God is always at work in the mess. He's always at work in a mess. If we truly knew that, if we truly believed that, how different would our response be? And we can see that through the trial by fire, through him overcoming temptation after temptation, trial after trial, Joseph grew in wisdom and stature and he eventually could bear the burden of nations. The image of people bowing down before him was not important anymore but there was a humility and a strength that was birthed in his heart. And when the time came in the fullness of time, Genesis chapter 41, verse 38 occurred. It says, Pharaoh asked his officials, can we find someone like this man so obviously filled with the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has revealed the meaning of the dreams to you, clearly no one is as intelligent or as wise as you are. You will be in charge of my court and all of my people will take orders from you. Incredible outcome. And even in the years that Joseph was missing, I believe that God was also doing a work in the lives of his brothers, even in his father Jacob's life. I want to share a bit about Jacob, Joseph's father. I want to jump quite far to Hebrews. I've always been puzzled about Hebrews chapter 11, verse 21. Hebrews 11, we all know this, the most popular uh, chapter in Hebrews is about the hall of faith. Statements about men whose deeds showed tremendous faith. Sometimes uh, statements about Abel, Enoch, and Abraham. For example, verse 5, it says, By faith, Enoch was taken up so he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Okay, so I was, wow, very inspiring. However, I always felt that the statement about Jacob in verse 21 was a bit strange. Of all the deeds and seasons of Jacob, the author chose the blessing scene from Jacob's deathbed. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 21. 
if you can read together, it says, by faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. And that's all it says about Jacob. To be honest, right, how is this glorious? Why, why didn't he choose his wrestling with God? Why didn't he choose his working for seven years for Rachel? Why doesn't he choose um, his encounter with battle? But it says, by faith, Jacob, while dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and bowed in worship. Why did that take faith? Why was that such a big deal? Because in Genesis 48, it revealed that jo Jacob crossed his hands when he blessed the two boys. And you need to understand the journey that Jacob had gone through. And now, finally, Jacob has new lenses. What I mean is that the gospel of grace has affected the way he views social society, social reality. He has finally let the spirit of grace affect the way he looks at significance, at everything. But it took a long time. Yes, Jacob experienced the grace of God years ago, but he continued on his own um, behavior and having his own worldview. He has been striving for significance in his entire life. But as his deathbed, in Genesis chapter 48, Jacob crossed his hands when he blessed Ephraim and Manasseh, right hand for the younger, left hand for the older. After years of experiencing the mercies of God in his own life, now finally he gets it. When Jacob puts his right hand on the second born Ephraim head, he was obeying the Lord and he went against cultural norm. It didn't matter what was normal, he just submitted and he was insistent on it, even against the, the outcry of his favorite son, Joseph, all right? And after years of fighting for his inheritance, trying to win the approval from everyone, finally, Jacob gets it. Jacob begins to see God's worldview differently. He now knows you can't strive to get what you think you deserve. Once you are in the will of God, that's the best place to be in. Amen? And on the deathbed, that final act of, action, of faith earned him a place in the hall of faith in Hebrew chapter 11. And Jacob also said something that's very precious and significant. Jacob was reflecting back on his life and he made an astonishing statement in Genesis 48 while he was blessing the two boys. In verse 15, he says, May the God who has been my shepherd all of my life. Incredible. This is the first time God is mentioned as a shepherd in the entire Bible. And let, let's think about it. Do you know what kind of life Jacob has had? Let me recap for you. He was raised by a father who didn't love him. He worked 20 years, slave for 20 years for Laban who exploited him. Then when he finally married the woman he loved, she died within just a few years in childbirth. Finding the light of his eyes, Joseph was missing action. And Jacob spent the last 15, 20 years of his life in clinical depression. But now Jacob at the end looked back at his life and he had the audacity to say, at every spot, all of my life, I was under the care of a loving shepherd. And Jacob was a professional shepherd. Jacob knew what he was talking about. Jacob on one hand know that shepherds are always doing the best for their sheep. But sometimes the sheep wouldn't get it. To be honest, right? Sheep are one of the dumbest animals ever. If you leave them alone, they will eat their own excrement, all right? They will eat their own excrement. And they're the only animals that can't go home and can't survive in the wild alone when they're set free. Have you watched a video of a sheep being put in a huge container of insecticide once every couple of months? If they, if they, they, if they didn't put in the container, they'll be suffering, they will die from insect bites. But when you're putting their head down, all they're thinking is, what are you doing? 
What kind of evil shepherd are you? Why are you drowning us? What kind of shepherd are you? And the sheep never feels love when it is being loved. Sometimes the sheep never feels safe when it's being made safe. And Jacob at the end was not bitter at, at all because he knew, he knew that the shepherd had been protecting him and leading him all this while. And I just want to say this here, that for some of us at the end of the service, the spirit will deposit in your heart the, this truth that you have been shepherded all along. You always think that you're left in the lurch, that God has forgotten about you, but you just think back, the Lord has been leading, guiding you, preserving you, even when things don't look good. And when you look carefully in the story of Joseph, there's no mention of God revealing himself. God is never even referred to. God seems to be absolutely absent. I don't think you can find any other chapter in the book of Genesis in which God seems to be completely quiet that's the incredible wisdom of the author because listen to this, though God seems to be completely absent on the surface, he must have been restoring and redeeming down to the tiniest details, every little thing that happened, all the things that seemed to make no sense, but every single one of them was redeemed and used for his glory and our restoration, amen? He was arranging things for the salvation of this prophetic promised family. Joseph could only save the community by being rejected by the same community. He could never be their savior unless he was first lost, unless he was broken, and unless he was rejected. And look at his broken family. They're all grown men, but there's so much sorrow and hatred in them. They were even scheming to kill one another. Can you imagine looking at this family from an outsider's point of view? It would seem that reconciliation and healing would be impossible. But some of you are facing things in your family. I'm not talking about simple arguments, but you, at the back of your mind, you think, oh, this is impossible. Reconciliation is impossible. But can I say this to you, that God is in the business of restoring all things for His glory. It's never too late for God's redemption. And this is the family that God is gonna save the world. And in the Joseph story, sinners are doing what sinners do best, messing everything up. And God is doing what he does best. He's weaving events filled with hatred, sorrow, and hope into a finished product that we could have never have foreseen because he's sovereign and altogether good. And I believe there are certain tests that God allows us to face, not to destroy us, but to prepare us for the blessing that is to come. And we need to understand that God will only allow trials in our lives that will transform us into His image. Amen? Psalms chapter 105 verse 19 says, Until the time came to fulfill His dreams, the Lord tested Joseph's character. Isn't that amazing? Maybe sometimes we are in a pit and we think, I need you to get me out of this right now. I need immediate rescue and salvation now. If you don't, then you're not a good God. Disappointment is a miscalculation of God's purpose and intention of our future. But perhaps God is saying, I've never been absent, but I'm seeing the big picture. Right now, all you want me to do is just to remove this hurdle, this obstacle, but I'm seeing further, I'm looking further. I have the right vantage point. I have the right view. I'm looking at family reconciliation. Perhaps God is refining us by fire. Remember just now I suggested that it seemed that the theme of Joseph's life was this, that God, like the royal baker, had forgotten Joseph. But when he came to the end of the story, we hear from the lips of Joseph himself when he said to his brothers, don't be afraid of me. 
Am I God that can punish you? You intended to harm me. Yes, I know this. But God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. And from a human perspective, Joseph's life seems like a series of hard knocks with no meaning. However, our view changes when we have new lenses. Our merciful God is able to take the worst things that can happen to us to become the best things that can come through us. But through we all remember that God is good and God loves us too much to let us be sovereign over our own lives. Amen. And Pastor Yang once made this statement years ago. He said, when you're in a pit, instead of just saying, God, set me free now, lift up your hands and say, Lord, reveal yourself to me and glorify your name. And while we still have time um, towards the last part, I just want to conclude, but I just want to share with you about one last character in the Bible. I want to talk to you about Esther. Because both Esther and Joseph are quite similar because God worked behind the scenes to prepare them to save a nation. And I want you to take note of this because I've heard some teachers mention there's no mention of God in the entire book of Esther. Perhaps God's apparent absence is actually part of the book's very sophisticated way of expressing God's providence. And it seems like there are so many coincidences in the, in the story of Esther. It seems like, wow, I mean, what is this? But when you look at the Old Testament, it's a book filled with extraordinary displays of power. We read about the templates, the pillar of fire, uh, uh, the, the Red Sea parting. It's like when God's people were in serious trouble and when God comes through for them, it's very obvious. When God shows up and comes through for them, the events in which He's intervening in are extraordinary. Like I mentioned about the rescue of Elisha. But here in this story of Esther, there's no extraordinary miracles, no obvious workings of God, not even any mention of the voice of God. He seems to be quiet, but we can see a whole string of coincidences. Let me share with you just four. First, King Ahasuerus gets drunk and decides to parade his wife. Second, Esther happens to be chosen in chapter two. Number three, Mordecai happens to overhear two men plotting the king's life. He was sitting outside the, the city gate because he always wanted to, to see and to hear how Esther was doing. And he happened to be there when they were plotting the king's life. Fourth, the king happened not to be able to sleep. He began to read, open the book and read about what's happening in his kingdom and he learned about the, the, the actions of Mordecai. And when we hear this story, we realize, wow, how is this extraordinary acts of power? But God was weaving through the entire story to redeem the entire nation. I was looking back at my own life. No angel has appeared before me, no angelic activity, but I've seen the hand of God all of my life. I was thinking, what if, what if 10 years ago, I, I did not text my mom my, my parents were in missions and I was in Singapore, and, but I was in a very bad place. I was almost about to backslide. And I texted my mom that I want to leave church. But one of my friends at that same week texted me and said, why don't you go to Cornerstone? And at that same day, my mom in, an, in the other nation texted me, why don't you go to Cornerstone? And I changed my mind. Second, I was, uh, many years later, I was at work. I was reading Facebook and I was just scrolling through and um, I saw a post and it shows one of my colleagues, Lynette. Now she's my colleague. And I showed that she graduated from School of Leadership in Tengling. At that point in time, God spoke to me and said, I want you to quit your job next year to go to Bible school. And I texted my mom. I said, I feel that God told me this, but don't tell my dad. Because my dad got very excited when his son goes to full time. I said, no, 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 don't tell daddy. Just, just keep to yourself, pray with me. And when I texted her, she told me this that night that um, when my, my 
my, my, after I texted her, my dad walked out of the room, looked at her and said, I have a feeling that Elijah should go to Bible school next year. I don't know. No angel appeared, but God has been moving behind the scenes. God has been changing things. And what if um, seven years ago in church camp, um, Pastor Lee was praying for someone. I was an author worker. I was catching a person. And uh, my cell group was saying, hey, Elijah, let's go for lunch. But I didn't know. I felt I should just help out. And after Pastor Lip prayed for this person, immediately Pastor Lip prayed for me. 20 minutes, he prophesied. He said this was the longest prophecy ever given to anyone. And he began to spoke into my life about the teaching ministry, about how I was going to pastor people. And now as I'm reflecting back, my life was a mess. And I have not seen like incredible feats of glory, yes, but at every stage of my life, in my brokenness, in my redemption, in my family, God has been in control. Apparent coincidences But they're not coincidences God has been putting His hand On my life And I'm where I am now Because He's good And His mercy endures forever Let's rise to our feet Amen He is Lord most high Yes But He's also Shepherd most near He might be hidden But He's never absent And God loves you too much To let you be sovereign Over your own lives Then lift up your hands Father we give thanks Lord Lord, we reflect back on your goodness over our lives. All of us here, we are testament of your goodness and grace over our lives. When we were, we were wielding off the perfect path, you have brought us back. And Lord, we love you, we honour you. And Lord, we ask in the name of Jesus for anyone here who is still in the pit, for anyone here whose family is broken and fractured, you can redeem them now and restore in the name of Jesus. Nothing is impossible. Nothing is impossible for you. And Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus that every single one in this building, Lord, we will walk into your perfect will. Lord. Let us not inch even one inch from the perfect path you have established for us. And we bless you and we honour you. And I bless these precious brothers and sisters. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and grant you His peace. And may the blessing of God the Father, the strength and grace of Christ the Son and the fellowship and communion of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. And everyone say, Amen. Amen. Let's give God a praise offering. Amen. just listened to a production of Cornerstone Community Church. Please note that all unauthorized reproduction, distribution, or sale of the recording is prohibited. For permission to reproduce or distribute the sermon, please write into mail at cscc.org.sg. We hope that you have been blessed.